This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The continuing struggles of American Indians are front and center this week with the Army's approval of the Dakota Access Pipeline. The battle for control of tribal resources goes back more than a century. Today, we'll hear about the largest class action lawsuit ever filed against the federal government. The late Blackfeet activist Eloise Cobell fought on behalf of tribes across the West. Here's Cobell from a new film. It was our money that they were using whichever way they wanted to. I've never sued anybody before in my entire life, let alone the United States of America. I said to myself, if you don't do it, who will? Cobell, along with the Native American Rights Fund in Boulder, filed suit in 1996. It resulted in a settlement of some $3.4 billion, far less than the estimated $176 billion owed, but still a victory. 100 Years, a documentary by filmmaker Melinda Janko, tells Cobell's story. It screens at the Arvada Center tomorrow. And Melinda, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Briefly help us understand the history that led to the class action lawsuit. Explain what happened with tribal lands over 100 years ago. Well, back in the 19th century, um, they allotted land to 300,000 individual Indians. It was their way of um, assimilating the Indians into the culture back in the 19th century. And so they gave them uh, parcels of land. The government, the federal government said, um, we don't think that you're able to manage this land, so we will manage it for you. And we, we will keep it in a trust fund. So they established the Indian Trust Fund. And so over the course of uh, 100 years, they were supposed to be accounting and giving them, um, you know, answers and explanations for how the royalty funds came in for the land that they were given them. Royalties for all kinds of natural resources that were on this land. Oil, gas, timber, grazing. Uh, University of Colorado law professor Charles Wilkinson is one of the experts in your film. He specializes in federal lands and Indian law. And he says these allotments fundamentally didn't work. Most tribes aren't farming tribes. (laughs) And so land was leased out to non-Indians. And the same is true with tribal timber sales and tribal oil and gas operations. Those monies went to the United States to be held in trust. The United States received real dollars directly and has lost the dollars. So nearly a century after these allotments of land were made and of the resources on them, Eloise Cobell was appointed the treasurer for the Blackfeet tribe in Montana. She found evidence of mismanagement of the trust payments. Tell us more about what she discovered. Well, she found these gapping holes in the account statements where oil companies were coming onto the reservation and taking oil, but they weren't paying for it. So she started making phone calls uh, to congressmen and senators and uh, BIA officials and Basically, they told her that she didn't know how to read a statement. So she was pretty embarrassed by that. She went to school. She got a degree in accounting. And um, she, she actually, you know, looked into this deeper and deeper. She knocked on doors, called anybody who would talk to her in Washington, D.C. And finally, under President, uh, the first President Bush, she got some interest from the government looking into what was wrong. And in 1994, they passed the Indian Trust Reform Act. But two years went by, and nothing changed. Nothing changed. And so 
she had had enough. And she, she drew a line in the sand and said, enough is enough. When you say that companies weren't paying for oil, what do you mean? I mean, that, that, that sounds so astounding. Well, in her particular case, um, in, on the Blackfeet tribe, they, they weren't paying. And so she, there was a clause that said that if they didn't pay in three months, they had to pay, you know, interest on top of what they owed. And so she was just trying to get them to pay what they owed. And then she started digging deeper and deeper and found this trail of fraud and corruption all the way from the Blackfeet tribe to Washington, D.C. There were sweetheart deals made and, uh, you know, a lot of things that went wrong. And there was, like I said, never an account statement sent to these beneficiaries of the trust. And they would get checks, sometimes for $89, sometimes for $2. And sometimes they get a check saying that they were owed the oil company, a minus. Eloise Cobell also contact, contacted other tribes to see if this was going on beyond her own. Yes, and she and she had support from other tribes because they all had the same story. And they grew up hearing these stories in her generation of uh, they, they, they all gathered together in families and they all had the same stories. Missing land, dwindling funds, in the film, you speak to a number of people who were recipients of the allotments, many of them living in extreme poverty, despite oil and gas leases on their properties. Like Mary Johnson, a Navajo grandmother who relies almost exclusively on a few dollars in her allotment to receive support for her family, she receives pennies of what a non-Indian is paid for gas from her land. And that was a clip of Eloise Cobell from the film testifying before the U.S. Senate in Washington, D.C. Can you tell us more about Mary Johnson and her living situation? I understand she's still alive. She is. She, uh, I believe she's 93 years old now. And she's a, another warrior woman. Um, yeah, she, had, she took us to uh, four of her oil wells. And they were pumping, all of them. And, um, on she, her land. On her land. On her allotment. And she still, to this day, at 93, lives without running water. Yes, it's hard to believe. Um, but this is this is what's happening. And this is why I wanted to tell this story, because I was appalled by what I discovered. Um, Native Americans living in abject poverty, one in three still live in abject poverty. And they have mineral rich land. So they're land rich and, and poor. But is the fact that she has no running water because she can't afford running water? Is that about her financial situation? Uh, yes, it's part of it. Yes, uh -huh. absolutely. What else did you find as you met people on their land for this film? I just found deplorable living conditions and people that were um, very, very upset about the the fact that they'd never received an accounting. There was no explanation. The oil companies, they would never consult with them. Everything was done through the Bureau of Indian Affairs and under the Department of Interior. I mean, I took my film crew out there, and they would just look at me and scratch their heads, and they'd say, is this really happening in America? They were amazed. That it was third-world conditions we were looking at. Have you sought uh, the views, the response of the BIA? No, I've not heard anything from the BIA. I did get a message from someone who worked at the Government Accountability Office who wanted to show the film there. Eloise Cobell fought for justice for Indians for nearly 30 years. Can you talk about specifically what she was trying to accomplish? Well, she wanted an accounting. 
That's what she wanted. She wanted an accounting. She wanted justice. And she said um, when they were awarded this $3.4 billion settlement that it was a small measure of justice. But it nonetheless is, is justice. So that's what she wanted. She wanted justice for her people and compensation. And this was a result, again, of a lawsuit, the largest class action lawsuit at that point filed against the, the federal government. Cobell won a MacArthur Genius Award. She appears to be an unstoppable force. And yet in the film, talks about how frightened she was to file the lawsuit. Oh, she was very frightened. And I love the story that she tells because she ran back to her room after she saw government, you know, staring her in the face, you know, big, huge buildings in D.C. after she filed the lawsuit. And she went back to her hotel room and said, how can I do this? I can't. And she called a friend and that friend said, well, Eloise, if you don't do it, who will? NARF, that's the Native American Rights Fund in Boulder, filed the lawsuit with Cobell. Uh, John Echohawk, a Pawnee, is NARF's executive director. When the litigation was filed to correct this broken trust fund system, it was because we uh, realized that we did not have to live like that anymore. We didn't have to live on our knees. How did he help you with this film? Well, I'm a non-native, so and I'd never set foot on a reservation. I didn't know any Native Americans. And so, you know, I had established relationships of trust. And I started with John Echo Hawk. I called him up and said, I'm going to be in your area for a wedding. I'd like to stop in and talk to you because I want to tell this story through a feature-length documentary. And he was very interested in talking to me because they needed exposure to the story. It's very buried in, in the press. I'll say that the settlement was announced in 2009 by President Obama, and it took more than two years to get approved by Congress. Uh, there's a sad coda to Eloise Cobell's story. Yes. Um, four months after the final approval from the courts, she passed away. And um, the day after she passed away, she was nominated for a Congressional Gold Medal. And just last year, November 22nd, I believe, President Obama posthumously awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Had she been ill? She had been suffering. The last time I spoke to her, we had dinner together in San Francisco. She was receiving an award. And um, she had been suffering from pneumonia for many, many months and was really um, unable to re recover fully. She did not know that she had cancer at that time. And then I started seeing um, reports coming back and pictures of her in D.C., uh, and I could see that she had lost quite a bit of weight. So um, I, 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 you know, I was close to her, and we talked all the time, and I um, spoke to her son, Turk, about the situation. I had planned to go see her um, the week that she died. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with filmmaker Melinda Janko. Her documentary, 100 Years, is about the Blackfeet activist Eloise Cobell, who fought for justice, fairness um, in federal trust payments for Native Americans across the West. How was the money split up? And did Eloise Cobell receive any of it? Eloise never saw a penny of it. 
the checks did she was entitled to some of of course her family did Uh Uh, but she passed on as her attorney said she saw the finish line but she was never able to cross it and uh the settlement broke down into um well there was a 60 million dollar cobell scholarship um that was established for native youth there was 1.9 billion that went to the Cobell land buyback, and what that meant was the government would offer the landowners fair market price for their land, and then they would give it back to the tribes to manage. And then the 1.4 billion went to the individuals in checks. So the average check was approximately $1,200, and there were two checks one in 2012 and one in 2014. And some were larger because if you had oil land, it could have been, you know. $20,000 or so. But um, that was the, the way it was broken down. Has justice been served here? I think a small measure of justice has been served. A song called On Ghost Ridge was composed especially for the film. You went to Ghost Ridge on the Blackfeet Reservation to film with Eloise. Uh, just before we go, uh, tell us what happened at Ghost Ridge. Ghost Ridge was a, uh, a sacred burial site where 500 Blackfeet Indians starved to death in the winter of, I believe it was 1884. And um, food rations were held out, you know, handed out to the Blackfeet Indians by the agent. And their hunting tools had been taken away from them, so they had no means to provide food for themselves. And so one by one, men, women, and children, starved to death. And what they did was they dug a huge open pit grave and they put all the bodies in this grave. And it's a very sacred site uh, for the Blackfeet people. And Eloise would go past this site on her way to work all the time. And she would stop and she would pray to those who suffered there. And it was them that she fought for. And so... When we took her there to film, we could see it was very, very hard for her to talk about it, what happened there. And after we filmed, she got in her car and drove off. And as she did, a rainbow appeared. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Filmmaker Melinda Janko's documentary, 100 Years, about the largest class action suit filed against the federal government, screens tomorrow at the Arvada Center. Watch a trailer and uh, hear the song you're about to hear in full at cprnews.org. Sometimes This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When Marine David Pond returned from war, something was missing. After serving seven months in Afghanistan, Pond and his bomb-sniffing dog Pablo were split up. But their recent reunion has helped him deal with his experiences post-deployment. It has also helped him to talk about those experiences with students and the public at Regis University in Denver. Through April, panels at Regis will feature veterans from World War II through to Iraq and Afghanistan.
Along with David Pond, another Afghan, Afghanistan vet that is, Nathaniel Pryor, is part of this long-running series, Stories from Wartime. They spoke with host Nathan Heffel. Thanks for having us. It's good to be here. David, let's start with you. From what I've heard, uh, you and your dog were inseparable in Afghanistan. Why was that? So as a canine handler for the Marine Corps, unlike your typical deployed military unit where they train together and then get deployed together, a canine handler for me and my guys, we were together in the States, but then when we would land in country, we would go to the winds. I wouldn't see some of my buddies for seven, eight months till the length of the deployment was over. So it was essentially you and your dog. It was. We would get tasked out to wherever bombs were. So you end your tour of duty and you come back to the States, but Pablo is still in active service. And so you are separated from Pablo. Can you talk a bit about why you wanted him back and maybe what he was doing while the two of you were separated? Pablo went down to continue his mission down at a different base than where I was originally stationed. And I was having my own issues, trying to get through school and just some mental stuff, just trying to process everything. And I just finally had, once I finally started challenging everything that I had done while I was deployed, I just didn't know how to interpret a lot of it. And all thing, everything was good, ethical, but I needed, I came to just kind of one conclusion after looking high and low and trying every avenue, spirit walk you can think of. And uh, I needed my dog back. And you did get Pablo back. Uh, that actually happened relatively recently. I hear the emotion in your voice and, and the difficulty talking about your time away from Pablo. Why did you want to speak about this in a classroom with students and with members of the public? I hadn't vocalized a lot of the things I had while I was deployed outside of maybe like my family and a few friends. And just being able to like go out and just talk about it and pour your guts out, it gives people a chance to try and fathom these things. Um, I'm not a woman, so I will never experience the miracle of childbirth or anything like that. It's the same thing with war. Unless you've gone or been in the military, you just don't know. So by telling our stories, where we've been, what we've done, and giving it with a bit of an edge, like exactly what happened, not sugarcoating it, I think people are just, the the, the students in the, the, the community that comes in to watch us speak and stuff, I think they're just in awe and they're appreciative that Guys are trying to just kind of explain themselves and just create awareness is the biggest thing for me. I want to bring in a fellow Afghanistan veteran, Nathaniel Pryor. He's with us. Uh, Nathaniel is currently a student at the Regis School of Physical Therapy. And Nathaniel, you also have an interesting story about your relationship with your fellow soldiers. You were home stateside for two weeks on vacation while your unit was back in Afghanistan. And you actually tried to sneak back. Uh, to your unit. Why did you feel you had to be back with your fellow soldiers? When I first got to Afghanistan, I was a member of a team. So our team had five people in it and we were extremely close. We were like brothers. And um, our whole company ended up being like that through serving in Afghanistan and being in battles together and stuff like that. But just when you're Basically, your family is in a dangerous situation and you're back in the United States on vacation, basically. All you think about is if they're okay and what you could do to make them okay if you were actually there. So, 
And you were injured in Afghanistan and received a medical discharge from the U.S. Army. Uh, Nathaniel, David, these panels that you're both on with stories from wartime not only include veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan like yourself, but they're also veterans from the Korean War, World War II, and Vietnam. Did you find that these men and women had similar stories as you, or, or were they completely different? David? Probably a couple years ago, um, listening to uh, the Vietnam veteran speak was very eye-opening. Um, having my father as a Vietnam veteran, though he was not um, directly in a combat role, hearing it, a lot of the same stories, not same, but the same type, it's, it's, it's war, in, regardless of the time period or things happen, people get hurt, and seeing gentlemen speak from 40 years ago, this is when they were 18 and they're, you know, in their 60s now, and they're still... With, with the same things I can do. I can't tell you what I ate for breakfast, but I can tell you smells, dates, units I was with, names of guys I was with from almost five years ago. And hearing these Vietnam veterans speak with such conviction through the same – through their own stories of after such time has um, elapsed, it really helped me put things into perspective like I'm – this isn't – I'm not unique. I'm not – somebody else has gone through this and that has helped me a lot like just kind of process it. Well, they can do it. You know, and they're functioning and they're members of society and they're – all of them were professors at universities and doing very well for themselves. And they just had these stories that you wouldn't know if you just met them on the street. And that helped me a lot. Nathaniel, do you feel the same way? thing I can most uh, relate to to hearing from other people in the class was also from the Vietnam guys. And it was – how different their experience coming home was than ours. They dealt with um, a lot of hatred towards them. People didn't like the Vietnam War. And um, it was very hard for them to come home and reintegrate back into society. But our war was, I wouldn't say more liked, but people supported it more. And the VA was better at this time. And it was an easier transition, I feel, for us than the Vietnam veterans. And that just opened up my eyes to like, yes, I'm dealing with a lot of stuff, but it could be a lot worse. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Afghanistan war veterans Nathaniel Pryor and David Pond about Regis University's stories from wartime. It helps students and the public learn about the complexities of war from people who have lived it, veterans from World War II to Iraq and Afghanistan. I want to bring in one of the organizers of Stories from Wartime. Nate Matlock is here. Uh, he's been with the program for 13 of the 22 years. What do you hope students take away from this course and these stories? These are raw stories that these veterans are telling. There's a number of things that we want the students to get out of it. I think um, as I'm sitting here next to my two of my former students, in fact, uh, talking about their own war experiences, it makes me – think about how important it is for the public to have an understanding of what the individual experience of conflict is really like. About 1% of the population ever serves in uniform, um, and only a small fraction of those people even ever actually see a shot fired in anger. And so I think it's very important for people who have done the nation's fighting to be in dialogue with members of the community and with the public so that everybody can have um, some better understanding of what's done in our name, how it's done, and we can make some uh, informed decisions about when we're going to commit to a course of violence in order to solve political problems or deal with issues in the world. 
What do you think about what Nate just said, uh, Nathaniel, uh, David, the fact that very few people actually serve in uniform and maybe the fact that a lot of Americans may not have a close friend or family member who's served in some of the recent wars? Yeah, this is uh, Nathaniel. I kind of feel like it's both an honor and a curse. Um, I, I kind of feel like some people think that we're like monsters for doing this or like we have loose morals or values, which also isn't the case. But at the on on the flip side of it, I also feel it's an honor because not many people get to get to do this. And the bonds that you form with people and the experiences you get to have are some of the best experiences you'll ever have in your life. They might be bad at the time, but I wouldn't trade my service in Afghanistan for anything ever. Uh, this is David, and I would concur. By serving your country and going to Afghanistan, you you get all these experiences that at the time, it, it's a curse, but it's it turns into a beautiful curse because I wouldn't be anywhere near where I am today. I didn't graduate high school, and now I'm considering, I'm aiming for healthcare into grad school, PA, med, I don't know yet, but I would have never even got this far. I'd probably be pumping gas in Westminster somewhere, Colorado, if I hadn't enlisted. So just everything you get from it, you just, you will grow from it. If you can just make it through all of it, the end, the war doesn't stop for a lot of guys once you get home, once you can get through all of it. Understand veterans might be going through things on top of where you're worried about homework and class. They're also thinking about stuff from three years ago that they're still been what ifing. And I guess we're people too. It may not be your neighbor, but it's somebody's neighbor who served. It may not be your kid, but it's somebody else's kid. And just have the understanding to admit that you don't have an understanding. Nate Matlock, uh, this is the 22nd year of stories from wartime. Have the stories changed over the years or have they stayed the same? Is there a general theme that you find uh, every year when these veterans come to speak uh, to these students and, and to the general public? That's a great question. And when the class started off in 1995, it was focused on the Second World War. I wanted to turn the course to be more of one about war experience more generally, American war experience in the 20th century. I do have a lot of the same people come year after year. Um, they tell similar stories, but the stories are always different in different ways. And, and one of the reasons that's the case is because, you know, human beings are made of stories and we're always under construction. And so it's interesting for myself, of course, who's there every year to see the stories as they change over time and where the emphasis shift. And I find that people who, have, who are new to telling their story, they tend to be very raw. They tend to be – it's very difficult. It's clearly difficult. Sometimes I feel conflicted about that. Um, but I've, what I've noticed over time is that as the veterans who participate in the panels um, become more practiced at talking about things, they're able to refine their stories in such a way that they can live with them, that they're, they're better at living with their own stories. And so I, I'm hesitant to you know, talk about therapy, um, but there is, there's no doubt, I don't think, that there's a therapeutic effect that happens when veterans are able to go through their own stories. And as a historian, I wasn't looking to help people in the sense of, you know, can I, can I make a forum in which veterans can talk about their experiences and go through some kind of a healing process? My job was to get their story. And then those, those who, who listen to the story and who take it in um, can do with it what they will, right? That's the job of the historian. And I, and I helped to sort of midwife our understanding of what they had to say 
and I've had Vietnam veterans and World War II veterans and Korean War veterans all tell me the process of coming to the class, listening to other veterans, having the opportunity to talk about their own experiences had some pretty profound life-changing effects. Now, it may be therapeutic for you, David and Nathaniel, but these students are actually also learning to take your oral histories. What are some of the questions that the students ask you? David? I think a lot of people have this interpretation of what war is from is Hollywood and video games, and it's not. There isn't always a happy ending, and the the questions are engaging, and some of the stuff you would get, um, have you shot anybody? And those are the kind of questions people would ask. Is that an appropriate question to ask a veteran? And some guys would say, like, no, it's not. It's, it's, it's very personable. There's some things like you just don't ask. And I would consider something like that one of them or so. A lot of the questions I've been asked have been about my time before the army, because I had a very different pre army story than most of the other people that were ever on the panel. How so? I was a troublemaker before the army. Um, I did some things that were going to basically send me to jail and it was either go in the army or go to jail and I chose the army and I'm pretty open with that now. I wasn't at first. Um, Like last year on the panel, the movie American Sniper had just come out and someone asked, how does he know that he had this many confirmed kills? And that was something I told the professor that I would never talk about, but I actually ended up answering it. It just came out, and it kind of felt like a weight was lifted off me. And that's why I'm personally very open to answering any question anyone asks because I I just feel like it's healing and it gets easier with time. So Nate Matlock, um, is that something you maybe discuss with your students beforehand? Like, hey, there may be some questions that are maybe off limits, or is it really an open discussion and any question is on the table? I kind of split the difference on that. We talk about what questions are going to be more difficult. And I talk with them about ways to ask questions in such a way that they're not going to, you know, really upset somebody off the bat. You know, if you want to know about someone's combat experiences, a good kind of question to ask is, how did your experiences of actual combat compared to the training scenarios you were in before you deployed, right? That's a way you can ask somebody about what a firefight is like without just, you know, jumping in there and saying, have you ever killed anybody, which is a question that I've never met a veteran yet who appreciated. It's so direct, you know, it's such a personal thing. And it's an under, and I should point out, actually, it's an understandable question. I mean, you're talking to soldiers and that's their job, mm. you know, so it makes sense that someone would want to know that about you if you're talking about your military service. But there are ways to get to those things that are a little gentler, but, that, but are also, you know, direct enough that you're going to get to it. And David, do you feel that you're being heard in these these panels and this discussion? Does it get easier each time you talk about these things? It does. Um, for me, just being able to actually talk about these things, I was recalling things I don't, I hadn't spoken of or even thought of in years. Are there things that you've talked about on this panel that maybe you've never told anyone else before? Yeah, it was probably the first day um, I saw a casualty of my own and. The gentleman lost uh, both his legs um, up to the hips, and I helped do first aid on him, and 
the pictures in my head are a lot more vivid than trying to articulate it. Uh, it's, I don't know, at the time I was fine. We moved, it never affected me while I was deployed, but it was after I got home and started processing like the things we'd done, like this was not normal. This is not what normal people go through. Normal subjective anyways, but the rest of the United States. And it just, I just think I was changed after that. And it was because of a student's question that you thought about this. I had never thought about it. It wasn't in my normal vocabulary of just like things that would come out of like normal discussion and then actually speaking about it and processing it and having somebody else listen besides that's outside of my inner circle and just saying these things. And I was also, I guess, overcome with the emotions finally too and saying it out loud. I felt like I was almost feeling what I should have been feeling while I was deployed, but I didn't have the time to process emotions, I had to keep going. I had to keep walking point. I had to keep taking, going on patrol with Pablo. It didn't matter what I wanted. It's about the guy to my left and my right. And every patrol I don't go on is potential for this to happen again, for somebody to get hurt. And that was not going to happen while I was deployed. I had to make it to X day, July 4th, 2011. And then I don't have to care anymore. But up until that day, I have to put every breath and every ounce of energy I have into being the best dog handler I could to make sure guys come home in pieces. They don't come in pieces. They, they, they're whole and they're walking and they're get to see their family and their kids. And so. uh, Nathaniel, you've been shaking your head a lot as David recalls his stories did you feel the same thing that when students asked you questions, your answers uh, maybe helped heal a little bit or or process things? I feel like it helps me let go of a lot of the pain and guilt that I feel from being in Afghanistan. I can just release all the negativity that I have in my mind and in my body and turn it into something positive, which is helping the students and people in the community better understand what we go through and what war is like so that they can make a more educated decision if we're going to go to war in the future or not. And yeah, I think it's been probably the number one thing that got me to the point I'm at today. Nate, David, Nathaniel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank Thank you you for having us. Nathaniel Pryor is a retired soldier. David Pond is a Marine. They contribute to Stories from Wartime at Regis University. Nate Matlock coordinates the long-running event. They spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel. The series runs Tuesdays through late April. Tensions between the oil and gas industry and neighborhoods are once again heating up on the front range. At issue are the very rules designed to help communities avoid conflicts. CPR's energy reporter Grace Hood reports. The view from Don Stein's Greeley home looks different these days. The impact from the world has been horrible. Stein's outside and she points to a 32-foot beige wall. The company Extraction Oil and Gas built it on two sides of her house. Stein can't hear very well, so sight is important. In the distance, white latticework of a large oil rig appears 1,000 feet away. All the traffic has been horrible. Stein lives on a busy West Greeley Street, so she's used to traffic. But now there are semi-trucks rumbling on a dirt road near her bedroom. 
Her story is part of a new twist on neighborhood drilling complaints. Oil companies are building larger pads with more wells. Extraction oil and gas will drill 22 of them. That means the rig and drilling will last longer. And the 24 tanks the company plans to store the oil in means more truck traffic. And that has Don Stein concerned. I don't think that anything this size belongs with homes around it like this. I mean, that's just nuts. A task force appointed by Governor John Hickenlooper saw this problem coming as more people moved to the front range. One year ago, the state adopted a rule that adds extra considerations for companies. After a lengthy review process, operator extraction oil and gas agreed to more than 60 conditions to control things like odor and noise. But this neighborhood known as Triple Creek, where Stein lives, says the process is lacking. So they sued the state. We're trying to save a lot of people a lot of headaches and heartaches that we've been through by what we're doing, by making them enforce what they should have done with this one in the first place. Triple Creek residents want pipelines to transport oil. After the wells are drilled, they cut down on truck trips. Residents claim they're entitled to the best available technology that's outlined in the rule. Extraction Oil and Gas declined CPR's interview request. The company deferred questions to the trade group Colorado Oil and Gas Association. Just because one operator can do something in one location doesn't mean that another operator can do it at a different location. That's Dan Haley. He's president of COGA. He says companies are doing what they can to minimize impacts for homes. But there are constraints, like geology. The minerals are where they are. And if we're in a spot where we can be farther away from a community, we definitely want to do that. Despite industry assurances, communities like Triple Creek are still left wondering why their backyard is the best spot for a large-scale facility. Matt Lepore heads up the state agency that enforces oil and gas rules. His agency has the final say on drilling permits. I'm comfortable with where we are right now in larger sites. I mean, the consolidation of sites in one place means there are fewer sites anywhere else. Lepore explains when a company owns mineral rights, they're legally entitled to extract them directly on the land above. It may not be feasible to purchase another plot of land nearby, and it may be too expensive for pipelines, although he says extraction oil and gas is working towards pipelines in Greeley. As more people move to Colorado, Lepore says the industry and communities need to plan better for the future. If you're next to the big pad and you're new to the state and you're part of this influx of people, I think it is a contributing factor to the dynamics that that we're dealing with. In fact, he says the task force rules were intended to spark more upfront planning between companies and communities. The idea of more planning is being tested in Broomfield, where a similar debate is playing out with the same company. 500 residents crowded into a city council meeting last month. We're not an anti-fracking group. Brenda Carrington moved from Castle Rock more than a year ago. She says she was caught off guard by the project. Extraction Oil and Gas wants to build four large pads, some with as many as 40 wells to the north. We're just a group that's asking the oil and gas company to take their fracking to a location that's not near homes and schools. The clock is ticking. Oil development was on pause for years while courts weighed the legality of a voter-approved moratorium here. Last September, the city was surprised to learn future neighborhoods it approved could be just over 500 feet from a 40-well pad. City Councilor Greg Stokes says Broomfield needs to more comprehensively plan before drilling starts. Again, had we known in a a five-year development plan that this was going to be much larger, this 
you know, most likely could have been developed differently by the builders. Stokes and the city council will weigh how best to do that later this month. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. One of the hottest words these days, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is huga. It's Danish and roughly translates as coziness. The glow of a candle can be huga. So can food, porridge, for example. It's also something of a lifestyle, and it has come to the U.S. Alexandra Gove and Kuhn Van Renswoude run a Colorado-based online store called Huga Life. Welcome to the program. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for having us. And indeed, Huga made the Oxford Dictionary's shortlist for 2016's Word of the Year. Alexandra, how do you describe it in your own life, maybe? So huga is really, it's a feeling of joy and contentment that comes from creating, creating special moments out of our everyday lives. Would you call an item huga if you were referring to it, or is it more of an atmosphere? I think you can call you can call an item huga, but I think the overarching feeling is what huga really is. Okay, you uh, Kuhn, had offered to light a candle in our studio. I, our, our our engineers might not love that, but uh, <laughs> you wanted to create that environment here. How do you create huga? Absolutely, yes. It's as I said making everyday moments a bit more special. So that could be lighting a candle over breakfast, or uh, when having your cup of coffee. It can be setting a fun dinner stage when you're having friends over for dinner and just give it a little extra special touch. I use the word coziness as a rough translation. What words would you use? I think coziness is pretty much as close as the English language gets in one word. Okay. But what's so special about huga being added to the Oxford Dictionary now is that now we can use huga in English as well. We don't have to say coziness anymore. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Kuhn, you're originally from the Netherlands. Um, the two of you actually met in Vail and moved back to Amsterdam in 2012. And that's where you and Alexandra experienced something called Gezelgeheid. Yeah. Is that right? Which is kind of the Dutch word for this? That's right. In Dutch, gezelligheid comes really close to uh, what huga means. Uh, and it's often, uh, it would describe a situation where you're with others and having a good time. So either where it's fun or where it's cozy, but it does include being with others in a social context. And then traveling to Copenhagen, we discovered Huga, which encompasses even a bit more. Is it a cultural phenomenon, would you say? Because you did indeed travel to Copenhagen, Denmark. We did, yeah. And what you see in Copenhagen and in Denmark um, is that they really, it's a part of their culture and their lifestyle and their everyday lives. And it's something they bring from childhood all the way to old age. What are other ways you saw it manifest, Huga? So in Copenhagen specifically, in all the cafes and homes, I think candlelight and lighting is a huge part of Huga. So you go into a, uh, a cafe or somebody's home and you really feel that warm, comfortable atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And Danish people really know how to... Their culture, they really slow down and really enjoy a moment. It strikes me that these are countries where it gets awfully cold. Do you think Mm -hmm. that the cold has something to do with this, Kuhn? Uh, It does, partly. Uh, Huga is definitely a year-round thing as well for the Danes. Um, But uh, cold, dark winter absolutely adds to lighting an extra candle uh, and making it maybe a bit more cozy than you otherwise would. All right, so you run an online Huga lifestyle store and you sell things like candles and sheepskin rugs. 
What are the most important things that you consider as you're looking to buy things to sell uh, when you're making a space more huga? So what makes the mark in terms of what you'll sell online? We we choose pieces that, first of all, we've already experienced in European homes um, and that gave us that feeling of, of comfort and that, that huga feeling. Um, so it's things that really, again, add that special touch to your life or to a moment. And it's things we, we really encourage people um, to to bring things into their homes and into their lives that give them joy, that they really, truly love. I was reading a piece that was kind of scathing about Huga and, and considering it a bit precious, perhaps, and really questioning why there's so much to buy around Huga when Huga really is a feeling. Is there something that violates the spirit of Huga by turning it into a, a kind of marketed thing? How would you respond to that, Kuhn? Yeah, I think when we founded Huga Life in 2013, the main objective was to really bring to the U.S. what we experienced in Europe. Yeah. Um, so there you talk about experiences. That's in the summer of 2014, we travel around Europe in old camper van um, to spread, well, Huga vibes and experiences. And currently we're also um, organizing a Huga dinner series with the goal to really let people experience Huga, and not necessarily by purchasing a product, but really having people um, recognize those little moments in their day-to-day life that are Huga. And to accentuate those, how would you answer that question about marketing Huga, mm-hmm. selling Huga? I would say that, first of all, you can't buy Huga. <laughs> I think what we are helping, uh, we're trying to help our friends and family and um, customers realize is that we already, we actually all already experience huga, but now we have a word to uh, attribute to it. So when you have that that word and that consciousness of this feeling, it really helps you to um, uh, to make those moments in your everyday life. But again, you can't buy huga, but I think you can by realizing that huga exists, you can create those moments and create those atmospheres in your home. It strikes me as almost the new feng shui. Mm-hmm. Does, does that make sense? Which was kind of this art of how space makes us feel. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks to both of you for being with us. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you very much for having us. You heard there Alexandra Gove and Kuhn van Renswald. Uh, they live in Denver and are co-founders of Huga Life, an online store. It was the first retail shop based in the U.S. to focus on Huga, the Danish lifestyle of cozy living, or now we can just say Huga. The 59th annual Grammy Awards are just around the corner, and among the nominees is Denver native and guitarist Bill Frizzell, who's up for Best Contemporary Instrumental Album. When You Wish Upon a Star is comprised of Frizzell's interpretations of classic film and television music, including the song As a Judgment from Once Upon a Time in the West.
Denver native and guitarist Bill Frizzell, who's up for a Grammy Award. That's our program for today. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.